Yeah, they get you to doubt yourself and then you start to change yourself. That's why I say it's like selling your soul. The super granddaddy of Chinese martial thought, Sunzi, he wrote The Art of War, seventh chapter of that. He lays out this idea called the Golden Bridge. And he says that when you want to conquer an army, the smartest things to do, if you have the power to do so, is to surround it on three sides. You don't surround it on four sides. You don't surround it entirely because they'll fight like mad if they know they're trapped. But if you surround them on three sides, he says, and you show them a path to life, they'll take it. And when they're taking it, they won't fight. And that's where you get them. And so what the struggle session does is it creates that psychological pressure. You're surrounded on all sides. Am I a bad person? Did I mess up? My own friends are down here. They just want the pressure to go away. This is the dynamic of the struggle session. They've weaponized a social environment. And then the, the disagreement within that environment turns toxic and polarizing. So they end up cracking the, the, the group from within. It doesn't have the internal cohesiveness or even solidarity any longer. It's now fractious within itself about its opinions about how to deal with this overwhelming false pressure campaign that's being mounted against them to do some demanded, you know, act of, of contrition or penance, show them a path to life and smash them when they take it. And so it's a very brutal thing actually to do. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. My guest today needs no introduction. I would be shocked if there are listeners who aren't familiar with him. But in case you're out there today, I have the honor of speaking with James Lindsay, one of the prominent intellectual thought leaders of our time. He is a man of many hats, and I won't give his full CV right now, but among others, he is the host of the podcast and website New Discourses, um, the author of several books, including How to Have Impossible Conversations, A Very Practical Guide, which he co-authored with Peter Bogosian, and Cynical Theories, which he co-authored with Helen Pluckrose. Um, he is known for the Grievance Affairs Project. Grievance sorry, Studies grievance Affair, studies. yeah. Grievance Studies. <laughs> grievance Studies. Um, and uh, James has an interesting background. He's a mathematician. He is trained in martial arts. He was formerly a massage therapist. And uh, I've been following James's work for many years now. And I finally decided to reach out and invite him to speak with me because of a very interesting recent episode of New Discourses that I believe was called This is How We Fight and Defeat the Woke. He took an unexpected turn and drew upon his background in Chinese five elements theory, which, again, I was not expecting. Um, and James, I felt quite endeared to you uh, when you were introducing this episode because you kept giving these caveats like, this is really weeby, this is really dorky, I, I hesitate to share this, I think I'm going to be made fun of for this, and I, I felt your vulnerability in that. Um, personally, every now and then I do an episode that branches out 
from what people are used to on my podcast. And I really appreciate when I do that, when certain listeners reach out and say, hey, I enjoyed that you covered this. I'm, I'm glad for it. So I, I felt inspired to reach out to you and say, hey, I'm really glad you went there. I know you were thinking maybe you might be judged for it, but I'm actually a hippie at heart. And um, a lot of my friends when I was in my 20s were all into uh, Chinese medicine and uh, related schools of thought. So I really enjoyed that episode of New Discourses. It took such an interesting turn. Um, you described it as the 30,000-foot view, and you drew on these fascinating metaphors using the elements of nature to understand, um, well, as you framed it, how we fight and defeat the woke, but I want to frame it as understanding a particular form of psychological warfare. And that's what I'd like to talk with you about. I think that, James, you are one of the best experts I could possibly speak with about the concept of psychological warfare because you really seem to understand it in and out. And I think that you're probably drawing from your background, uh, being a highly logical person as a mathematician, um, as well as your martial arts background. So I want to open that topic up today and ask, maybe as a starting point, James, what does psychological warfare mean to you and why is it important for us to study it? Well, I'll actually start by saying, surprisingly, I've got nothing but an ocean of positive feedback about that particular episode of the podcast. Um, people really did love that, that I went into the five element theory analysis. So I was surprised about that. Um, I don't want to get over my skis and go into some other aspects of martial arts and, and get into it. But part of the reason also that I'm, I'm pretty familiar with this is that I have subjected myself to the uh, psychological warfare battleground called social media, uh, pretty full on for over a decade now. So I have a lot of, in many cases, very unfortunate firsthand experience with social media facilitated psychological warfare. And so psychological warfare is a tool that's used within a broader context of what's known as political warfare. And the object of political warfare is to use manipulative techniques to get your an, your enemy to do what you want them to do without necessarily shooting them or having a gun to their back and forcing them quite literally to do what you want them to do, but rather through propaganda techniques, through manipulating their psychology, through manipulating their social environment um, to create conditions in which they think that the uh, what what they should do or what's best for them or what's necessary to do given the context that they're placed within is to do what their enemy actually wants them to do. And so a lot of the techniques are subtle and a lot of the techniques are very manipulative and some of them are borderline torturous. Like the struggle session is, is I think actually a form of psychological torture that's facilitated through social means. And this is a very sophisticated weapon. Why is it important to understand psychological warfare? Well, first of all, what's happening all around us is psychological warfare. We're starting to wake up to the fact, and I will get called conspiracy theorists, but we embrace that label these days. It's like a kind of a um, compliment. Uh, but we're we're inundated with with waking up to the fact, or I should say, we're waking up to the fact that we're in, inundated with propaganda, and that much of what we consider to be the news, for example, now. Uh, seems not to be telling the whole truth. It seems to be doing a very good job of distorting, of twisting, of spinning is the word, but also lies of omission are overwhelming. Um, and when you start to think about that, it's what, of course, Donald Trump got very famous for reappropriating. They weaponized the term fake news against him. And as soon as he heard it, he said, oh, you're going to say I do fake news? You're fake news. You know, and fake news stuck. 
And everybody kind of saw behind the curtain for a moment and realized, well, not for a moment, ever since that CNN and, you know, the legacy media broadly, the New York Times, as he called it, the failing New York Times, are telling people what they want them to think. They're positioning them. They're engaging in psychological warfare, in fact, propaganda techniques against them, which then raises this weird, unsettling question. How long has the news been lying to us? And this is very, very destabilizing when you realize that the portrait of the world that you have is badly distorted and the portrait of the world that you've had your entire life might have been badly distorted. It's a very um, unsettling position to find yourself in. It's very hard to find your feet. It becomes difficult to know what to trust. That transforms into difficult to know who to trust. Um, and you get into, again, a very destabilized or demoralized kind of situation, which I think we find ourselves in. And that's a very fruitful tool within the broader political warfare um, set of tactics. So it's very important for us to know because we're surrounded by psychological warfare techniques and what people call psyops, uh, although active measures is a more accurate term for, for these things kind of everywhere. Um, the more subtle techniques include things like nudge theory, which I'm not expert in. I think that's Cass Sunstein is the one that was kind of behind that. If I got the name right, I mix some of these people up sometimes, but that's the idea that they can just kind of suggest things to you over and over and over again, using things like the mirror exposure effect. And then suddenly you think, yeah, I did want to do that. And so they've nudged you into the kind of behavior they can create, um, psychological pressures. For example, uh, maybe they make it just a little less convenient to do the thing you want to do and a little more convenient to do the thing they want you to do. And so psychologically, after a little while, you say, you know what, why am I resisting this? And you just kind of go into, I don't know, a central bank digital currency or something because they've made life very hard. If you don't participate in it, they never forced you to pick this thing up, but they made life very hard if you don't. And they make life much easier if you do. Um, these kinds of tactics are, like I said, all around us. And that doesn't even touch the outright bullying campaigns, the um direct psychological attacks, the destabilization attacks that we face on social media. So it's incredibly important for people to understand psychological warfare because that's the way the current environment uh, that we find ourselves in is really organized as around psychological warfare techniques, whether from, you know, enemies, foreign or, and or domestic, both. Uh, very kind of concerning issue. Just an example of a foreign entity. Um, this is more appropriate to Europe. But we look at the energy situation in Germany, which everybody kind of here in the United States is kind of thinking, oh my gosh, what have they done? You know, they turned off their power plants. They're looking at possibly dangerous winters two in a row now. They don't have a really good scene. And then we come to find out that it was Russian propaganda in the green movement that actually led them to make these bad mistakes. The Russians were actually funding the green movement in Germany to get them to adopt these green energy policies that put them in a state now of energy dependency on Russia's pipelines or freezing to death in a, in a hard winter. And so that's a psychological warfare mechanism that should feel very familiar to us because we see activists and protesters and things doing all kinds of stuff all the time. Well, Russia can be doing that in Germany. They can be doing things in the United States. China is certainly doing things, you know, globally. They're very good at this. Um, and that would apply kind of across the board. We have our own intelligence agencies and our media and our, I don't even know what's happened to our universities. Well, I do, but, um, flooding the field also. So we we have to understand it because the psychological domain we're in 
now, especially with social media is and 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 in fact, mass broadcasting is so 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 uh, different. It's it's a matter of perceptions as opposed to a matter of what's really happening, um, and it, it plays on our our psychology in very sophisticated ways. You describe psychological warfare as operating by getting the target to do what you want them to do as if it's their own idea, mm-hmm. which makes so much more sense, is so much more efficient and impactful than the ancient warfare techniques we think of with with outright brutality. Force isn't needed when you can use psychology instead. And I, I want to frame this discussion coming from this place of being a peace-loving hippie at at heart, you know, realizing that I have found myself in a position where I end up becoming a very polarizing figure, even though what's in my heart is I really care about helping people understand each other better. I'm a world bridger, but I think part of the dilemma of uh, how psychological warfare takes advantage of people is that people who might actually share many character traits in common with me, people who might be peace-loving idealists at heart, that idealism, the uh, the fantasy, it, it can cause us to be kind of childlike and to live in a state of wishful thinking. We don't want to believe in evil. We don't want to believe in war. We don't, we don't think of ourselves as supporters of war. So we think that, well, if I just um, approach life uh, from a place of loving peace and all things good, then that will create that kind of world. And I want to say yes, and there's there's ways in which that can be applied, and you can create more peace in the world. But there's also a way in which that leaves you with a hook that can easily be hooked into um, because of the unwillingness to see evil where it exists, and the unwillingness to see that regardless of your own interest in war or peace, um, there is war happening. And you are not just the subject of your own life, but you are also an object in the views of others. There are power-hungry entities with their own agendas that see you as part of their plan. And so if your own psychology can be capitalized on to lead you in a certain direction, all the better. And if your idea of yourself as someone who loves peace and love and all things good and and classic liberal values or whatever it is that you cherish, if that self-concept and that value system can be used to lead you in a direction that they want to lead you in, great. It's all grist for the mill. And I think there are a lot of people who don't want to see themselves as so naive. Yeah, But it's important to recognize that we can be duped because then we have an appropriate guard up. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they say that the people who are most susceptible to propaganda are the people who think they're too sophisticated to fall for propaganda. Um, And I don't think they say that. I think that they they know this. I think that this is actually just a true statement about about the world because people who um, believe that they're immune to propaganda are very likely to get like you said, caught on that hook because they are are kind of blind to the fact that they might be being misled. Um, I see these kinds of dynamics playing out around us all the time from virtually every angle, especially the the points you were raising about using your own values against you to to lead you into saying, you know, that in order to be consistent with your own values, that you have to give something up that you actually value. Uh, is usually one of these kind of red flags that you're now dealing with a, a psychological warfare 
uh, circumstance. Um, maybe they'll say something like, you know, what, what, what we see going on right now in this kind of broad culture war battle about the books and libraries. They say, well, you're banning books, right? So you, of course, they assume you have a value that banning books is bad, that that's what totalitarian regimes do. So when you say these books are inappropriate, they reframe that. And that's the psychological warfare tactic. They reframe that into saying you're banning books. When in fact, what you're saying is they're not curriculum appropriate or child appropriate or developmentally appropriate or library appropriate because the library is a finite thing. It doesn't have all the books. It can't have all the books. They have to make some decisions. So why that book instead of some other book? But they say you're banning books. And then this propaganda technique can get very sophisticated. I was just dealing with this specific one, as a matter of fact. And we ran into a table that was protesting that said, you know, uh, the, the people that represent Moms for Liberty are banning books. They're in here having this conference. And they had a table set out set up outside where they were giving away banned books. And they said, well, they banned books. And then they had these books on the table that were all about immigration. They're all kind of cute. They're all completely unoffensive. They're not the books. In fact, they're books that, that the people inside that Moms for Liberty have openly said repeatedly that these books are fine. We don't see any problem with them. But people who don't know the story are going to come along and they're going to hear, wow, Moms for Liberty bans books. Well, what books are they banned? Well, here's a bunch of books and these are completely unobjectable, unobjectionable. The people inside must be crazy. And that's a psychological warfare technique right there. They're taking that, the idea of holding people to their values about banning books, but they're taking it another step further in delivering a propaganda message. They're no longer saying, well, this is the book that they want to ban and showing a book with pornographic images in it and talking through the issues of why somebody might be objecting to that book. They're offering other books completely that have nothing to do with it. And that's, again, this is this kind of misdirection and you get this psychological effect. Wow, why would anybody ban this? Well, we don't know. They're terrible people. They must be awful. You know, they and these kinds of things just happen all over the place. I feel like the whole thing we dealt with with cancel culture they got so many people to say cancel culture is not right. Don't go after people's employment because of their political opinions. That's just really terrible. You know, so you say you're against cancel culture and then you find one of these people who, you know, is abusing their position, that they're doing something egregious. I get a good example of this would have been in San Francisco with a school board member, Allison Collins, who was engaging in open I mean, pretty nasty racism against Asians in the city uh, from public platforms, had all these weird embezzlement stories floating around with her and her, her husband's company, all these reasons why removing her from the school board would have been completely appropriate. And that is what happened in the end. But what was the defense? Well, how could you come after me? You're against cancel culture. So they erected a set of values for you that you don't cancel people from their jobs for what cancel culture implies for trivial reasons. So now you can't hold somebody accountable for actual criminal activity or, you know, gross abuses of the public trust because that would be cancel culture. This is the, what this is how psychological warfare works. So when you're in that situation and they say, I thought you were against cancel culture, you immediately have a, a consistency dilemma. And I don't know the right psychological terms for these, but you have a dilemma of, wait, do I hold that principle? Am I being inconsistent? Am I a hypocrite? And we're very sensitive to being hypocrite. And if you're not prepared and don't have a very thorough understanding of what's happening in the moment that it happens, you'll fall for it. And you'll say, oh my gosh, I need to back off. Maybe leave her alone, guys. Leave her alone. We don't cancel on our side. We don't cancel. And the abuse, the person abusing the position of power gets away with it. And you know, these are a few examples. I, we could sit here for the next 
rest of the entire two-hour show and just give examples of this kind of holding you to your own principles, even when the principle was erected. Um, it's not even real. Uh, but there are so many different ways that that they create this kind of these kind of manipulations and and the psychological environment we find ourselves in is therefore very disorienting. That was a, that's an example of a disorienting situation to find yourself in. And if you're disoriented, you can't respond well, and you can be directed and misdirected and led uh, where they need you to be to achieve their agenda, which might only need you to be in a certain place for a small amount of time while they you know pass a policy, for example, and once the vote's done, the vote is done. I began to learn about psychological warfare through personal experiences of abusive relationships and cults, and then through being a therapist to people who had similar experiences and seeing how these things worked. Um, I'm curious how your background, especially with martial arts, has impacted your ability to understand not only psychological warfare, but what is the foundation of psychological warfare, which is um, aggression and all the ways it can manifest. Well, I mean... um the point of a martial art is to to win a fight. And so aggression, whether for offense or defense, is at the heart of it. Uh, and I, I will confess that the martial art that I practice is pretty aggressive. Um, it's not necessarily an offensive art. Uh, I'm not saying that we go around like picking fights or beating people up. It's nothing like that. But um, I spent a good amount of time when I first started studying it thinking, man, this is really brutal. I don't know if I want to pursue this. Like, can I square the realities of effectively combat with my otherwise kind of mild-mannered personality and sort of a, a sort of a softy on the inside, believe it or not. And it it was a struggle. It took a couple of years to square away. I mean, just to give you an idea, and this is what I was kind of alluding to earlier when I said I don't know if I get overconfident having been successful with that podcast if I go into another one based on my martial art. But we have six basic principles in our martial art which just to rattle them off are stable. And these all make sense sort of, except one will stand out. They're stable, accurate, vicious, cold, crisp, and fast. And so those are the techniques, th those are the principles by which we're supposed to execute our techniques. You gotta be stable, you wanna be accurate with what you do. And then when you do it, you're gonna be vicious. It's a martial art. And then you're going to be, you know, cold in manner. You don't care if you hurt somebody. That's the idea actually. And then, you know, crisp and fast kind of describe what they are. But vicious and cold like that's that's tough stuff you know that's but that's war and whether you're being offensive or defensive that's war and my martial art is in that regard actually very kind of psychologically oriented it is in fact one of our other principles not quite so abstract principle more of a tactical principle is if your opponent does not block that's good and if your opponent does block that's better because by blocking, if you've done your techniques right, you've put them into a worse trap. In other words, you have psyched them out into making a mistake. Like if I put my hand up and I go to, I know this is a little, little wonky, but if I go and I try to hit you and I just hit you, great, I hit you in a fight, you know. But if I punch in a way that when you block it, you put your hand up so I can grab your arm and throw you down, well, that's even bigger. Now I can hurt you in, in a bigger way. So Every one of our techniques is is designed not just to be an attack, but also a setup for a further attack. And so there's a very strong psychological element to it in that regard. Um, and so one of our other principles is, and this is actually ties into the kind of psychological warfare we find ourselves in with the various provocations that we see out in the world, um, 
is that everything, every time we put out a hand, we actually say that you should have eight options, but in reality, you should want to have two options for what you should do next. So you don't want it to be in any situation in a fight that I've reached out and tried to do something. And I only have one option for what I can do next, because if the guy's a good fighter, he's going to be able to predict what I do. Every time I put out a hand, he should know that if he puts his hand up high to block, he's going to get hit low. And if he puts his hand down low, he's going to get hit high. He has, he has a decision dilemma where he loses either way, putting somebody in a lose-lose situation. And of course we get all cutesy because my martial arts is really based on the number eight. So we say, every time you put out a hand, you have eight options. So there's no way the guy can guess what you're going to do next. And so if I put out, I have eight options and then I do the second thing and he responds to that. I have 64 options as a pathway to get to the, th the third thing that I do. That's overwhelming to people very quickly, but this principle of putting people into decision dilemmas is a political warfare tactic. And so when you're aware of this or a psychological warfare tactic, when you're aware of this, you, you have more ability to see it when people are doing it. Um, this is uh, what's called sometimes in the activist literature, a mid-level violence provocation. That's a very kind of technical term, but it's very familiar. This is what Antifa does very, very successfully. For example, they put a toe across the line. This is what they do with policy. They don't just charge in and cross the line. They put a foot across the line and see if you do anything. Well, if you don't do anything, then they gain ground. But if you do something, then they cry foul. We call that wound collecting. And, uh, you know, we say this is what, in fact, is happening with with the Monster Liberty event right now. The 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 you what is it? The Young Communist League of Philadelphia put out a GoFundMe or something today trying to raise money because some of their people lost their marbles at the protest, jumped over the barrier, got arrested. And now they're like, we got arrested. Send us money. Uh, so, you know. They put a foot across the line. Somebody responded, and in this case, law enforcement. Nobody hit them or anything like that. The law enforcement responded, restrained them, arrested them. And now they're saying, look at the bully cops. They arrested us. We need money. And so the cops, and we talked to the cops outside, could very, I mean, they told us. We, we talked to the police at one point. And we said, you know, what about arrests? What's going on? And they said, well, we've arrested four or five people, but we actually could have arrested a couple hundred by now. But we don't because we know they raise money off of it. We know that they're going to go make a media scene out of it. And so we're very judicious in who we bother arresting. Um, because if we just actually arrested everybody who broke the law, uh, you know, even sometimes ag somewhat egregiously, they're going to turn it into a gigantic pity campaign for themselves. So it's this damned if you do, damned if you don't state that this mid-level violence provocation puts you into. And so... I'm kind of familiar with that kind of arrangement because the martial art that I practice is strategic in that way. We, you, If you are in a warfare situation, you do want to set your opponent up to be in a lose-lose situation. Uh, that, that, that's one really good example. You want them to feel like they, that whatever they do, it makes their circumstances worse. Um, and I think that psychological warfare very frequently takes advantage of that. Uh, a lot of parents I talk to who show up to try to fight for their kids, whether it's from Moms for Liberty or other organizations, it's very consistently they say, well, if we don't do anything, then, you know, our kids are in trouble or in danger. But if we do something, here's what they're going to do back to us. And they know that the retaliation, even if they, all they do is something very basic, like speak up, that they're going to get harassed at their homes or they're going to get doxxed or their kids are going to get bullied at school or whatever. They know that they don't have any good options. That's psychologically demoralizing. Um, it makes it, it puts people in a position where inaction feels like the only action, the only option that they have. 
which eventually, of course, breaks loose. And then you have nothing but overreaction. And the whole dynamic plays out to the advantage of the provocateur, which is why they're called provocateurs. So all of this is designed to put people into checkmate. And you understand that well because you studied martial arts that that explained how all of that works um, when you are up against an enemy. One of the many skills that you teach on your podcast, New Discourses Bullets, is this idea of naming the dynamic. And I think about um, sort of exposing what's going on in situations like this. I'll draw a parallel with things we talk about in therapy. So um, in cognitive behavioral therapy, we understand that we have cognitive distortions and that we tend to think and behave in the same way over and over again. And if you want to exercise your brain's capacity for neuroplasticity, you have to train yourself to um, think and react differently, to see through your own cognitive distortions. When you have a cognitive distortion or when you have, let's say, a desire, however unconscious to you, to kind of maintain the status quo with whatever your level of dysfunction is, then you will find ways of bending whatever happens to suit your existing narrative. You have to want to break free of that, to look for a different way. That's at the level of the individual. Now, at the level of uh, relationships between people, um, sometimes one person has an agenda, however unconscious it might be, to see the other in a certain light. There's certain things that are being projected, and, and they're getting something out of that. Maybe they might say they want resolution or they want peace or closeness, but deep down, if you look at what their actions are telling you, they're pretty attached to seeing the other person in a certain way that allows them to continue projecting um, these parts of themselves that they don't want to own. So then extrapolate that out to sort of the, the group level, and you can see with these types of dynamics that you describe amongst um, you know politically warring groups that if you look at if you take a step back and you look at what the behavior is telling us, no matter what a group is claiming to be about, their behavior is actually telling us that they are determined to achieve a certain outcome and maintain a certain dynamic and to win no matter what. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's exactly exactly the way that it has to be understood. And so um, this is that kind of saying that, you know, whether you put it in terms of, in terms of war or you put it in terms of... Uh, the kind of classic is I didn't care about politics, but politics cared about me. Uh, and then you can't avoid having to engage. And in fact, at some level, at some point, you can't avoid having to uh, stop somebody who has an agenda or an aggressor, um, which means you have to understand the ways that they are attacking you. If it's martial arts, you have to learn how to deal with people who are going to punch or kick or grab or throw you Um or, you know, come at you with a weapon or something like this. If it's psychological warfare, you have to learn the techniques and the tactics that they use to manipulate your thinking, um, to manipulate your perception, uh, and to, to manip manipulate perceptions more broadly. I'll draw just one more example of this perception manipulation as a tool of propaganda and psychological warfare. Um, so this, I, I stick with this monster liberty thing because it's just so so many of the things were actually really perfect examples. I don't mean to keep harping on it. It's also fresh because it was last week. But um, there are maybe 200, 300 protesters outside the hotel throwing a fit, carrying on humping trees. I mean, doing all kinds of bizarre things and, you know, making signs and drawing graphic 
pictures of, of genitals and things on the sidewalk and chalk where if somebody looked out the window like children, they'd be able to see them, um, all kinds of provocations. And uh, they yelled and carried on and whatever. Well, the narrative that what they were yelling is Philadelphia doesn't want you here. Well, unfortunately for them, several of them were on the same flights that came that people flew in to go to the conference. So we knew that a lot of them, not all of them, but we knew a lot of them were flown in. We knew a lot of them were not really Philadelphians. The Philadelphia police confirmed this as well. We knew that many of them were bussed up from North Carolina and bussed down from New York City. We knew many of them were flown in from Portland and Seattle and other places on the West Coast. Some of the moms actually were wearing kind of cute clothes, like they had like rainbow shoes on or whatever at one point and like a smiley face on a t-shirt one mom did and she went to go out to dinner and the protesters thought she was one of them and they started offering her gift cards to sign petitions and, you know, telling her where she had to go to get paid for the day and all of these different things. So it was very astroturfed and fake. And so we kind of knew all this was going on and it's sort of hilarious, but the narrative and they wrote an article in The Nation, um, which is a very left wing very famous magazine uh, yesterday or the day before saying that the message was the city of Philadelphia doesn't want moms for liberty there. You were not wanted and you found out you were not wanted. Well, this really was funny because inside the hotel, whether it was a hotel management, whether it was a hotel staff, uh, you know, the people working in the restaurants or whatever, we were really, really well received. If we ventured out into the city, which they believe that we didn't actually do, but we there are pictures all over the internet proving we went all over Philadelphia. We went and saw the Liberty Bell. We went and saw Independence Hall. We went down to Little Italy. We went into Reading Market, and we went over to the Steps thing. Uh, we went all over Philadelphia. People went to the Rocky Statue, you know, and and everywhere we went, people were like really enthusiastic, really positive. All the Uber drivers loved us. All the places, the restaurants, everybody loved us. We were, I, I had like 10 random, like, I know who you are, famous person encounters on the street where everybody was like, keep up the great work. It's awesome. You know, the city loved us. We loved the city, but there's this narrative they've created by creating this local protest. that was very astroturfed and largely fake. There's this narrative that they're promoting now. It's fake. This is psychological warfare. This is what it looks like. The city didn't want you here. And here's the proof. So they ginned up circumstances to create a narrative that the city didn't want us there. And this is just yet another example. All we wanted to do is go have a, con a conference. And they brought war to us. We had no intention of causing problems for anybody. We actually would love to be able to walk across the reading market without having to deal with the protesters more often. If anybody's ever been to reading market in downtown uh, Philly, it's actually really cool. It's one of the coolest places I've ever been in my life. There's so much good food. There's lots of people. There's great energy. It's this crazy like food marketplace. It's really awesome. We would have loved to go back and forth, but it was very difficult because the protesters, the area that they were put into to protest was between. So this was all like orchestrated to create an image that they, they've, they've then run with. And it's a very bizarre kind of uh, thing, but the, the goal was to control perceptions. The goal is to do exactly what they're doing on social media today. The articles that they wrote yesterday and the day before, you were not wanted here. We chased you out of here, blah, 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 which none of it's true. And if you don't understand this, we wanted to go do our own thing. And I say we, because for, for full disclosure, I'm on the National Board of Advisors of Moms for Liberty. So I'm a we, I guess I get to be America's top mom this week. Um, but the war came to us. They put it there in order to be able to hound us, to try to get the hotel to, to cancel us. They've gone after the hotel and the police department for supporting us 
subsequently. Um, and they wanted to create narratives about this when that didn't work. They brought the war to us. And if we didn't know something about the psychological uh, environment is created in a psychological warfare situation, we might have fallen for a lot of it. We might have risen to provocations. We might have got you know ourselves in trouble. We might have done something dumb. We might have got pulled into, you know, who knows? I doubt with moms we're going to run into a brawl, but you can imagine a different group might have um, with such a provocation. And so it's very important because we had no intention of bringing war to anybody. We were in a hotel. We just wanted to enjoy a city. This is a totally normal American thing to do. But political war and psychological war was brought to us um, and is still being visited. And this is happening. I mean, I use that example. This is being played out again and again and again and again across American cities and has been now for a few years. So we have to learn about it. We have to understand it. How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise. Yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients. But I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now, I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro Cover. The Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. This messaging, the city doesn't want you here. I mean, you describe how it was obviously contrived because they flew in Antifa members from Portland and other places. I'm in Portland, by the way. Um, oh, bless you. But <laughs> thank you. Um, but it's it's this illusion of consensus. I mean, when when was the last time in human history that an entire city full of people all felt the same way about anything? I, I can't think of a time during my lifetime that that's ever been true. And uh, but it, it gets at something really deep in us, that tribal instinct to be included. And so this idea that the group, the mob, the masses reject you, it it hits something at our core. 
There's so many directions we could go from here. I just have a couple comments hearkening back to other things you mentioned. Sure. One is you said, I didn't care about politics, but politics cared about me. And I want to say that's exactly how I feel about the therapy field that I feel like so many of my colleagues don't care about politics, but need to understand that politics care about them. Same thing about children. Children don't care about politics, but politics cares about children. Um, I also wanted to ask, going back a ways, you talked about how at the beginning of your journey with martial arts, and I don't know when that was, but that at first it felt too um, hard for you, too um, cold and, and violent. Um, for the first two years, what motivated you to keep going through that whole time? Well, it's an interesting story because it wasn't actually my beginning of my journey with martial arts. It was later. I had actually studied other martial arts for over a decade at that point. So I was very committed to and interested in the martial arts. And then I met the, the, uh, the guy that teaches the Chinese style that I study now. And I was kind of this, holy crap, this stuff is martial arts is real. Wow. This is everything that I've known before. doesn't really compare to this. This is really fascinating. And so there was this desire to, to, to want to learn that, you know, this is really, I've never seen anything like it. It was quite incredible. Um, but then I started to realize like there was a period of time and it, it's, it's a very interesting story. I don't know if this is going to sound a little, um, <laughs> a little abstruse, but you know, where I grew up here in, in East Tennessee, we have, we have two different kinds of rattlesnakes. And it turns out if you find a fully grown rattlesnake, it's not the safest thing in the world. It's, I mean, it's a rattlesnake, but if it, if you spook it and it bites you, um, you're probably just in general going to be okay, uh, because of medicine. But if a fully grown rattlesnake bites you, it has actually control over its, its venom sac. So it can inject no poison at all. It can actually just dip its fangs into you and not put any poison in. It can inject a, a little bit to, you know, make you sick as kind of a warning and Eric can inject a lot and, you know, make you in a life-threatening situation where medical intervention is necessary. Well, if you come across a young rattlesnake, they do not have control over that venom sac yet. So if they bite you, they inject all they have. And it's much more dangerous. If you grow up around rattlesnakes, you learn this. It is much more dangerous to be bitten by a little rattlesnake than by a big one. And which is the opposite of what your intuition would be. Well, it's very similar. When I started to study this martial art, my friend and I were doing it together. And we were having these conversations and he had been in another, another martial art and I'd been in different ones. And then we ended up both starting this roughly, you know, within a couple months of each other. And we were having these conversations and it was the fact that we weren't very good yet. Uh, like the young rattlesnake is like, if somebody gets a hold of us and we use this, like, I think we're going to accidentally kill somebody. Like, that's a big deal. I don't feel that way now because I feel like I have more control over what I'm learning to do. But when you first start learning it, it's like really kind of a, a strange, it's like having grabbed a hold of power that you don't know how to control. And I mean, I can tell you the truth is somebody did try to, I've never had to deal with it in a, in a real sense like this, but somebody tried to mug him outside of the grocery store. Um, maybe after he'd been doing it a little over a year, a year and a half, and he just reacted exactly like we were afraid, reacted instinctively, and he turned, and it, the way he turned, you know, it, did it the way he should have, and he hit this guy, and the guy, the way he described it at the time, and he, he, he's a, he works in medicine, so it's probably accurate. He said, I, I'll just put it this way, he made an autonomic noise and crumpled to the ground, and then I... uh got my wallet back and then ran away because I didn't want to be there when anybody figured out what happened because 
I don't know if I killed him. And so we watched the news for a while, uh, like what happened. And so we had these weird conversations, like we're learning to hit people really hard in really, really dangerous ways. And we don't know how to, you know, fully control that. Um, so that was a concern, you know, and I feel like it's that kind of young rattlesnake thing looking back at it now, because I don't feel like I would be as out of control or just, you know, fling my full power that I was learning. Really, that's what it boils down to is not only were we learning angles, uh, and, and techniques, but we were also learning how to put out power that we had never seen in other martial arts before to hit hard. I mean, really, really dangerously hard. And, um, I don't feel like I have to flex. Like I, I didn't, I, I didn't know medium or whatever back then there was just, you hit as hard as you can, or you don't. And, um, I feel like I got to grow out of that, but it was very concerning because, you know, there was no hesitating around the idea that like, if you get in an altercation in a fight, this isn't something that, you know, I should be like in a boxing match, like punch, 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 punch. And somebody rings a bell two minutes later. It's like, if it's not over in about 10 seconds, something bad went badly wrong. Like, the other person should be on the ground incapacitated in the first, you know, five to 10 seconds, or you did it wrong. Um, it's not this tussle dragged out thing. And that, that's an intense thought when you start to realize that you're learning like really, truly dangerous techniques, um, that can actually hurt somebody. And this is a strange thing to be talking about, but, um, that was a concern, but what made me stick with it is that I actually wanted to, to, to understand this thing and actually get good at it. And as I got good, that feeling dissipated um, because I felt like I could, you know, make sense of the things that I was doing. It wasn't just, you know, swing your arm this way as hard as you can. It was, you know, it can make sense of these things and put them in, into a context of control, um, which is actually necessary to to be able to, to, to wield power. You have to be able to do it in a way that's responsible, but you have to grow into that. So I think that young rattlesnake analogy is actually pretty good for um, what the feeling was like. But the desire to learn this was what overcame it. It's just, I don't know, curiosity is the right word, but something like that. Just what is this? How do I get better at this? I want to get good at this. I love that rattlesnake analogy. It's this recognition that we have power and that that can be used for good or for evil. And that there's a responsibility to work with that power. Even if aspects of that power are in the shadow, there are things we don't want to look at or deal with within ourselves or within our society, that there's an obligation to integrate it. Jordan Peterson talks a lot about integrating our aggression as part of maturation. I think it's important because reminds- we come to the power before we can, I mean, I think necessarily we come to power before we come to the ability to integrate and be responsible with the power. You have to be able, you have to be capable first before, which means be able to go overboard before you realize that you have to be able to restrain it as well. Uh, which so restraining or controlling or, or um, channeling, you know, power or strength or whatever is a higher level skill. It's a higher level technique than merely having power. Actually, gaining power or strength or a technique is actually pretty low level basic stuff. But being able to use it appropriately is is a much higher level thing and i think it's necessarily that there's a dangerous phase that you go through when i used to train in a, in a karate studio a long time ago they said that the most dangerous people in a karate studio are the white belts and the brown belts not the black belts because the white belts are just kind of wild off the street and you never quite know what in the world they're going to do and they're often trying to just like 
you know, one up somebody who's a trained karate guy or whatever. And then the brown belts are right there at the edge of that black belt. So they're just desperate to prove themselves. So they've got that, you know, I'm going to show you I'm there kind of chip on their shoulder. And those are the most dangerous students in any, any dojo, so to speak. Um, that might be true, but I think that the the point is that you gain the brown belt being what I was thinking of with that is that you they've gained a modicum of skill, you know, three to five years maybe to get to that position of training. They they know a few things. They're a dangerous person, but then they don't have that full level of restraint that comes with years of seasoning and and practice and uh, discipline that comes later. And I think that that's generally something that's going to be true. So it, people that are looking to kind of get back involved with even political warfare or psychological warfare, um, there will, as they start to gain savvy with how to deal with it, they will become more dangerous in kind of a, uh, reckless sense before they become, you know, kind of a properly honed weapon that's, that's strategic and useful later. I'm wondering whether or not to share a, a recent experience I had. There's many elements of it that I want to keep private, but I was, I'll just say I was um, in a, a group of therapists for a week. And I knew going into this that there would be differences of opinion, especially when it came to politics. But I was on vacation at the same time. So I went into this thinking, I'm not going to subject myself to undue stress. And I also recognize other people here are also on vacation. And so I'm not here to challenge people in ways they don't want to be challenged right now because I don't want to subject myself to that stress or them. I'm also aware that I possess a very strong verbal sword. If I want to, I can rip someone to shreds. I do not use that power. I, I conserve that power for you know situations that really call for it where I feel like I'm up against evil and I have to use my aggression, but otherwise I pretty much keep it to myself. Um, and I, I try to treat people with compassion and gentleness, but I think my mindset of going into this, knowing that I probably did have differences with people that we weren't there to explore, um, meant that I just sort of gently kept my distance, um, in certain situations. And I'm imagining though, um, that other people, might not have thought things through in that same way because I spend all this time on social media. I'm a public figure. I'm a controversial person. I receive a lot of love and hate from people on the internet. So I have to think about these things. And, you know, people who aren't constantly in such a fraught position maybe don't have to think them through. Um, so there was um, a point in the week at, in which I expressed controversial opinions, but they were not directed at any member of the group. They were not meant to hurt anyone. They were meant to criticize um, a certain person in power and how that power was being utilized in a way that as someone who studies power dynamics, I felt was wrong. Um, and someone got very defensive uh, because they liked the person in power. And They lashed out at me verbally in a very sloppy way, really harsh language at me. And it was, it was the exact sort of thing that, I mean, obviously it was really hurtful and it caught me by surprise and I had to leave and go take care of myself. Um, but I thought about it a lot afterward and I thought, you know, first of all, I would never talk to anyone that way. 
And second of all, part of how I managed to avoid even having the temptation to talk to anyone that way was that, that I went in knowing that we have our differences and containing myself and, and having those appropriate boundaries, right? So it's like the lack of awareness that there is interpersonal aggression, that there are differences, that we have power, that we have the ability to hurt each other, um, cause this person to be really sloppy and not mindful about the fact that we're all on vacation and yes, we have our differences and we're going to navigate them adeptly. So she used some really abusive language toward me. Um, and that's just something I was thinking about with this rattlesnake analogy with you. Now, we didn't get into a struggle session, though. Um, and I know before we started recording, you had said that you wanted to explore the dynamics of struggle sessions. That is something I do have some experience with, including in groups of therapists as well. So I'm curious to start there. How would you define a struggle session and why is it relevant to psychological warfare? Well, a struggle session, it's a, it is a it is a technique or a term, I should say. The term actually comes from... I don't know how familiar you are with, with Chinese culture, but um, the Chinese are very blunt with the the way they define things. The reason, for example, that we call brainwashing brainwashing is because what got translated into English as thought reform, which is a nicer way to put it, uh, is comes from the Chinese words that mean wash brain. And they just very blunt uh, descriptions of things. And so they actually talked about when training people to have the right opinions, the right political opinions, um, they actually called it critical struggle. They called them, they didn't call them struggle sessions, they called it struggle. The thing that you go through is struggling with yourself to have the correct political opinions. And it is a psychosocial phenomenon. It is not wholly psychological. It's not as though you're in, you know, Guantanamo in a cell and they just start berating you and put you through all these weird psychological experiences. It is, in fact, creating your social milieu primarily. It is putting you in a situation where you are are, are um, alleged to have committed some crime. It can be a very uh, vague crime. In fact, it is best if it is a vague crime. Uh, for example, harming the Chinese people was a very common one during Mao's reign in the 1950s. Um, espionage is another one passing secrets, just very vague things that who knows what you could have done that they would have classified this. Of course, the idea is that the, the, in this case, it would be in, in that case, it would have been the Chinese government, right? The, the idea is that they're omniscient, roughly. They know what you did. You don't know what you did, but they want you to confess to what you did. And so it becomes a psychosocial phenomenon in which they're trying to extract a confession to a vague or, uh, ill-defined crime that they are trying to train you in their, again, their own language to recognize. They're training you to recognize your crimes on a predetermined set of terms. And so how do you harm the Chinese people? Well, they have a certain meaning for what, who the Chinese people that count as the people are. They have a certain definition for harm, which should, you know, raise all of our eyebrows in the present moment, because that's a very weaponized term. And we hear that word every day now in very kind of peculiar ways. Uh, and your goal is to be, their goal is to pressure you psychologically into figuring out on their terms how you harmed other people. Uh, and they facilitate this, and it's different in different contexts. We face them primarily on social media now. 
uh, although they take place in workplace trainings, DEI trainings in particular, I think at work, the diversity, equity, inclusion, or belonging, they call it sometimes now training, almost always uses this. White fragility as a concept is a struggle session in a box. But uh, in the Chinese prisons, it was a little different because you were in a prison. Part of your experience would be hauled in front of an interrogator or a judge who would tell you, you've committed a crime against the Chinese people, go ahead and confess to it. And that, you know, your crime is espionage or harming the Chinese people. What have you done to harm the Chinese people? Just start listing things. By the way, we know everything. And then they tell you whatever you say, whether you resist, whether you go along with it, whatever, that whatever you said was not good enough. And we're going to have to let you go back and think about it. But when you went back to your cell in a Chinese prison, you were not alone in your cell. You were in a cell with roughly 10 people total, plus or minus a handful, um, eight to 12 typically in a cell. And that social environment in the cell was very, very, very abusive. And if you didn't participate in the abuse, you fell back to the bottom of the ladder and your process started again. So it wasn't very hard to get the people in the cell to become abusers of the new people in the cell. And what they would do is not only belittle you and, and yell at you and, and, and harass you and not let you sleep and bully you, but what they would consistently do is tell you they were helping you. They were helping you to want to confess because when you want to confess and when you want to confess with sincerity, then what you're going to do is you're going to be able to wrap up this whole affair and we can just get on with it. And they're, so th what they're tantalizing you with is a sense of relief when you do it right. So your social milieu is weaponized against you to try to give you the sense that there's this dangled relief that will come when you do what the uh, perpetrator wants you to do. So the person perpetrating the, sp the struggle session or the, the, the mob maybe perpetrating the struggle session wants you to do something. Maybe it's apologize for something that you said. You said a racism or something like this, and you don't really know why you said a racism. Well, they have to teach you to recognize why what you said is a racism. They have to teach you to recognize your crime. And so they want you to confess to having done it and apologize and promise to do better and commit to activism. These are exactly the things that we see in the diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging training. Uh, there are also things that happen routinely on social media. And they bully you and call you names and tell you how you're terrible. And they just kind of constantly dangle this idea that it's it's just better right on the other side. All you have to do is say that you're sorry. All you have to do is apologize, and this pressure is going to go away. And meanwhile, it should it usually takes place where there's just enough ambiguity to where some of your friends want that pressure to go away too. You know what? Just apologize. Just be the bigger person. You know, it's they have a point. It's reasonable to go ahead and say that you made a mistake. All of these kinds of psychological pressures start coming from your social milieu. Now, they usually affect that social pressure by saying that you are besmirching some group you're involved in. So maybe, you know, I'm in a, my martial arts club or whatever, and they say, I am making my martial arts club look bad. And the only way that I can make the martial arts club look better is by apologizing. And they start saying this to people. Oh, people who do this martial art are terrible. People who work out at this club are associated with this guy. He's a racist, blah, 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 the whole thing. And so those people start to say, dude, just make it go away. Just say something. Just apologize and make it go away. And so it's this form of psychological torture, really, that's affected through manipulating the social environment around you to create psychological struggle so that you recognize crimes that are de ill-defined in reality, but are clearly defined on the terms put forth by the perpetrator. So that what you do is sell yourself out and accept the terms of behavior 
put forth by the perpetrator. And these things are really, really, really psychologically overwhelming if you get put through one, whether it's in person at like a, you know, a, a kind of a group thing or whatever, like at a DEI training or workplace or whatever, or whether it's online and you get one of these things that they've been called Twitter storms or, you know, a pile on or whatever, where hundreds and hundreds of accounts are all telling you that you messed up in some way and you need to, you know, make amends for it. And what you'll find reliable is your friends start saying, dude, make it go away. Dude, just, just admit you messed up and move on. Just take some accountability and move on. So it's a weaponization of social accountability to get you to confess to a crime you never committed so that you'll accept the trumped up terms that the uh, alleged crime exists on. And I think, in other words, it's a mechanism for weaponizing a social environment to get you to sell your soul. Well said. And you know what it sounds so much like is the experiences of the parents I talk to almost every day. I mean, I know you have your relationship with Moms for Liberty. I, in my role, I do counseling, coaching, and consulting for parents who are worried about their trans-identified youth. And they've they've been in situations just like this, whether it's with their kids or their friends, their their community. Come on, just apologize for misgendering, and then we can all move on happily and it, and it it eats away even when people are trying to defend their integrity even when people know why they won't go along they understand that the social affirmation feels like you say like they're selling their soul because it's at the expense of truth but that it it leads to a path that is so damaging even knowing that that social pressure is so intense i've had people who were very strong in their values and in their understanding of the issue coming to me saying like am i a bad person should i just give in everyone's telling me to just give in yeah they get you to doubt yourself and then you start to change yourself that's why i say it's like selling your soul from a position kind of we were talking about martial arts from a martial arts perspective we go back to kind of the super granddaddy of Chinese martial thought, Sun Tzu, which most people pronounce Sun Tzu. He wrote The Art of War, um, very famous ancient treatise on military strategy. In the seventh chapter of that, he lays out this idea called the Golden Bridge. And he says that when you want to conquer an army, the smartest things to do if you have the power to do so is to surround it on three sides. You don't surround it on four sides. You don't surround it entirely because they'll fight like mad if they know they're trapped. But if you surround them on three sides, he says, and you show them a path to life, they'll take it. And when they're taking it, they won't fight. And that's where you get them. And so what the struggle session does is it creates that psychological pressure. You're surrounded on all sides. Am I a bad person? Did I mess up? My own friends are down here. They just want the pressure to go away. They're, you know, with Moms for Liberty, one of the things was that in a newsletter, this is a recent struggle session, the entire organization got put through. Uh, in a newsletter, one chapter from Indiana put a quote from Hitler um, alluding to the fact that there's this kind of totalitarian takeover of education. And the famous quote from Hitler is, he who owns the youth gains the future. This is a very famous Adolf Hitler quote. And so they put this quote on the newsletter, obviously talking about uh, the context, the back context. They didn't explain the context, they just put it there. So there's enough ambiguity, uh, but the the context is obviously they feel like that's what the Department of Education and, and the federal government are doing. And that's the, the way that they feel is that the children are being indoctrinated in schools. And so that's kind of the comparison that they were making. Well, the struggle session was Moms for Liberty quotes Hitler. 
It wasn't this one woman who wrote a newsletter, put a Hitler quote in a thing, and maybe it was awkward. It was Moms for Liberty quotes Hitler with the insinuation that Moms for Liberty supports Hitler. Moms for Liberty is a fascist organization. Moms for Liberty is on the same path as that. And so there's immense pressure on 130,000 members from the, you know, the, uh, I guess, newsletter production decisions of one person. There's now pressure on 130,000 people. Well, that's a lot of people. Some of them are going to say, what? That's ridiculous. Leave her alone. Other people are like, just do what you have to do to make it go away. And other people are like, she needs to admit she made a mistake. That looks bad. And this creates a very toxic and divisive environment inside the group, Moms for Liberty broadly, that all focuses down on one person. But there's a path to life. She's surrounded on three sides, but there's a path to life. For not just her, but the organization itself, make an official statement. Apologize. Take it down. Say that you didn't mean it. You know, cancel your cancel your conference, which was actually one of the demands that they were making. There's a path to life. Just take the path to life and it'll all be better. But if you've read Sunza, you know what it actually is. Because if you take the path to life, that's where they smash you. So this dangled out with a struggle session, the dangled out offer of relief is false. They might give you temporary reprieve. And in fact, if you read the manuals from the thought reform prisons or the brainwashing prisons in China, they intentionally alternated leniency and strictness. Struggle session versus all of a sudden they would lighten up on you and everything would be great for three weeks. And then wham, back to psychological torture for no reason that you could discern. So that you're always on your toes. You never quite know. Three months of torture, three weeks of reprieve. And they would manipulate this because it's a very powerful psychological mechanism to do so. But they dangle out this idea of relief and maybe they give you a taste of it. But ultimately, it just goes right up the line. If the woman apologized or she changed the newsletter or whatever, it's going to be Monster Liberty, the national organization now needs to do it. And then it's going to be every single member needs to do it for their complicity and, and so on and so forth. This is the dynamic of the struggle session. They've weaponized a social environment. And then the, the disagreement within that environment turns toxic and polarizing. So they end up cracking the 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 the, the group from within. It doesn't have the internal cohesiveness or even solidarity any longer. It's now fractious within itself about its opinions about how to deal with this overwhelming false pressure campaign that's being mounted against them to do some demanded, you know, act of, of contrition or penance. And um, it's a very, very powerful phenomenon on people. But the art of war interpretation of that is show them a path to life and smash them when they take it. And so it's a very brutal thing actually to do. So you you sell off some of who you are. You give in to the mob. You betray your own integrity as as you phrased it and we'll let you we'll we'll let up. And so once they do that, then you demand more of them. Then you press even harder because they've taken the path to life. They're no longer standing on their own two legs and fighting back. They're no longer standing in their integrity. In fact, they've compromised their integrity. People who were in their group that counted on them to not compromise their integrity now are gonna look, and they see somebody who betrayed their own values in order to feel better, which even if you know why they did it, it's still like, there's a there's like a, a I don't know, it's, it's like precognitive, diminution of, 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 of respect for that. You lose respect for somebody who, who compromises their values in a situation like this. And the people waging this form of psychological warfare know that, and that's exactly what they're manipulating. And it's 
I mean, I think it's actually such a torturous form of psychological warfare that if it were possible to regulate such a thing, um, it's the kind of thing that would be listed in the Geneva Convention as, as completely inappropriate to do to human beings to, to launch one of these things intentionally. How that could be managed is virtually impossible because especially on social media, it's just outsourced. It's just diffuse. It, it can come from anywhere. It can come from, you know, all corners at once. It's, it, there's no way you could possibly do it. But if it were a government, a state actor doing it in a place like Guantanamo, I mean, we're talking stuff that should be against international law for torture and, and mistreatment. It's that psychologically uh, overwhelming. You talk about it as selling your soul or breaking one in, one's integrity, right? That first moment that you agree to let someone else or even the whole mob determine the terms of whether or not you were in integrity with basic principles. Um, so, for example, the demand to take accountability or to apologize for something often comes with the implication, sometimes stated quite outright, sometimes more covertly, that if you don't do as they say in this situation, it means you are a person who lacks accountability, person who lacks respect for others, lacks compassion, or any of these other things. And the, the crucial uh, alignment with one's own integrity in the situation comes from, do you trust yourself to self-evaluate, okay, was I in integrity? Did I show respect and compassion or whatever values are at play here? Have I taken accountability for any ways in which my own behavior has been out of integrity with my own principles. You have to be able to trust yourself to ask yourself those questions and identify whatever the truth might be. So you have to kind of have that cultivated as a regular practice that gives you a certain moral strength that you can then resist the pressure of someone else being the arbiter of that. You can say, I hear that you're asking me to take accountability, and you are implying that if I don't agree to what you said I did wrong, it means I am a person who doesn't take accountability, and therefore I'm a bad and morally corrupt person. Actually, I don't agree with that. I consider myself a, a morally upstanding person who takes accountability, and I have self-examined on this issue, and I simply do not agree with your conclusion that I have done something wrong here. Yeah, that's the taking a step back and uh, naming the dynamic aspect, which I think is Ultimately, the only thing that you as the target of a struggle session can actually do, um, for example, it, it, sometimes they make seemingly fairly innocuous requests of you and they, it would be reasonable to comply, but you can't because that's a form of capitulation. So now you must act unreasonably. Um, your screen name is reminiscent of some, you know, name that says something about the Nazis or whatever, some horrible thing in the past, and you didn't know it. Well, fine. Well, the, the way to take accountability would now be to change it. But now you've done something on somebody else's terms where you've actually not done anything wrong. And so the only thing that you can actually do is to step back and say, no, I, I need to talk to you about what you, what's happening here. You have to step back and name that dynamic. I have taken accountability. There's nothing wrong. And I don't recognize the authority that you're trying to wield over me. And I'm not accountable to that. And uh, that's the only way you can maintain your integrity, except that the other thing that you need to do is to continue with its social media. And this, I can't stress this enough. And I think you, we were talking beforehand, you are currently in this experience. Um, it's very, very healthy to put it away. 
you must stop looking at it. Social media struggle sessions are sort of hilarious because you can actually literally turn them off. You're not in a prison. You're not at your workplace in a training that you have to attend to keep your job. You literally can turn notifications off. You can take the, you can take the app off your phone. You can put it back in two weeks when it all comes down because they don't usually last that long. But it's so, you, you can't stop looking at it. I've been through like 30 of them. You can't stop looking at it. It's like a train wreck. You can't, but you're the train wrecking and you can't stop watching it happen. Um, you feel like everybody knows that you're a bad person. But the funny part is on social media, having been through these many times, what I find out talking to people is, wow, that was happening to you. I had no idea that was happening to you. I never saw any of it. So a lot of people that you think are now judging you have no idea that anything's happening at all. So the torment is mostly in your own mind. The, but the only things you can do are to put it aside and work on something productive and to name the dynamics. Stop and say, this is not something you, you don't have the authority to hold me accountable. I've checked with myself. That's a reasonable enough ask. I'm good. Thank you very much. You don't have any authority over me and your attempt to psychologically manipulate me and my friends is wholly inappropriate. So I'm going to step away from that uh, now and kindly see you later. And that's really about all you can do. It's of course, if you are doing that at a workplace, the EI training, or, or if somehow you find yourself in a brainwashing prison, um, you got a, a little steeper uh, climb to deal with to deal with that. But uh, with social media struggle sessions, where you, the mob descends on you and decides that you've made some just horrible gaffe, and somehow now you're associated to Nazis or Hitler or something, you really just have to name the dynamic and step away. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar, and it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. Incredible, the, the power, the influence that, that can have, just the sense that a bunch of random strangers have some problem with me, right? And it really brings up so much projection because people are projecting onto you, but you're also projecting onto other mm -hmm. people that they can see 
those things that you're ashamed of that might go back to some very specific memory from third grade, right? As if everyone can see that that spot on your soul. Um, this kind of leads to demoralization. And I, I want to invite you to comment on demoralization, but also spirituality, because I'm really curious where you've landed on these matters. You are known for your past involvement in the new atheist movement. You've um, written books on atheism. At the same time, you seem to have um, really positive relationships with uh, faith-based people. And your Wikipedia page, which is hilarious, by the way, um, accuses you of being funded by Christian nationalists. Um, so <laughs> the uh, the public can't get its consensus straight on where James Lindsay falls um, spiritually. But it seems like, if I understand from kind of the distance I've had from you over the years, like you've sort of um, softened on the atheism and, and um, maybe made more space for understanding the value that faith plays in at least other people's lives. Can I ask about sort of where you're at with spirituality and then how that leads to your understanding of demoralization? Well, I'm not spiritual in the usual kind of transcendental, you know, almost dualistic sense so much um, myself, but I have come to see the world's religions as, in some more than others, as great repositories of wisdom, as as, position, as, as structures that, that guide people to develop virtues and uh, very pro-social values. I think that that, in fact, is a key divider between religions and cults, as religions uplift and cults drag you into eventually drinking poisoned Kool-Aid or something uh, very dangerous. Um, they don't uplift. Uh, so I've, I've become softened is a good word. Um, I've veered toward a great deal of respect for the religious traditions and the wisdom contained within them, particularly the Judeo-Christian uh, track, although my martial arts Taoist, so I know a lot about that. Uh, and I studied Buddhism rather significantly um, a couple of decades ago. Time flies, doesn't it? Oh my gosh. Talking about things that happened over 20 years ago. Yikes. Um, so... <laughs> I mean, I think that these things are very, very valuable and important for people. And I think that people would identify by the way that I talk, that I probably have a fairly rich spiritual life. I just don't identify it with things that I would consider spiritual, um, like spirits. <laughs> I don't I don't think that that's real. Uh, and this is very upsetting to some people. But uh, I find that the, the, the wisdom, I think the wisdom is real. I think wisdom is very significant. And uh, I think that there's a lot there. I think some of the most important lessons that I know of, I still draw from biblical sources or the gospels, uh, for example, in Christianity. And I do, I have these wonderful relationships that are often conversations deeply rooted in matters of faith and, and scripture with a fairly wide variety of religious people. Um, I think it's a very powerful antidote to the thing that we call demoralization. Now, demoralization is a complicated enough term on its own. And I think religion actually can offer, or the wisdom at least contained, can offer the perspective needed to stay grounded against it. So what do we mean by demoralization? And I don't know where that term comes from for certain. I know that it's usually credited to this character who portrayed himself as an ex-KGB defector, Yuri Beznamov, who spoke in 1985, I believe, plus or minus a year, um, and tried to warn America, allegedly, about what the Soviets had been doing to take over America from within without firing a shot, as uh, uh, Nikita Khrushchev you know, famously remarked would happen. And so he said that 
the there are there are four stages to the transformation of a country like America. And the first of those is demoralization, which takes about a generation. It takes about 20 years. And then the next one is destabilization, and that takes three to five years. And the next one is crisis, and that might take six months. And then the next one is renormalization, which takes place after the big change that is justified on the crisis. And so demoralization, and he warned in in, in the mid-1980s, that America, that they, the Soviets had already been far more successful than they had ever hoped with, with demoralization. And he characterizes demoralization in a way that I don't think I would start with, but he says that it's the inability to tell true and false any longer. It's the inability to assess the evidence, to assess the circumstances around you and determine what is true and what is false, what is real and what is fake. And so that plays very deeply into this concept of psychological warfare in fact, it's sort of the purpose of psychological warfare is to render your targets in a, unable to tell the difference between true and false. I would add a dimension that right and wrong or good and evil come into this as well. You won't be able to tell the difference between right and wrong, true and false, uh, good and evil, or also real and fake. Those are kind of four different levels that are very close to what what um, Beznava is talking about. But the word doesn't suggest any of that. <laughs> the word doesn't suggest that one bit of that. The word suggests that you've lost your morale, that you've lost your ability to feel encouraged. What the kids call being blackpilled is demoralized. It's not whether you can tell true and false, right and wrong, good and bad, real and fake. It's whether or not you can feel like there's any hope in the world. You've lost your, your morale. Now, if we read from the book of Hebrews, for example, in chapter 11, which is the famous discourse on faith, um, we see that, in fact, faith is characterized as a form of hope and confidence in, in God's promises. So faith is, in a sense, very obviously a natural antidote to that state. Uh, I say this to Christians, as a matter of fact, all the time when they're in this kind of black-pilled or demoralized state, they say it's too late. We've already lost. We've already lost our schools. We've lost our universities. We've lost our institutions. We've lost our culture. It's too late. It's all gone. And I ask them just straight away, why do you doubt God's timing? Why would you doubt God's timing? Doesn't the book of Esther in the fourth chapter of the book of Esther tell us that we are here for such a time as this? And that's, by the way, one of the taglines for Moms for Liberty. That's how they view themselves. And it keeps their morale up very well. So if you don't lose hope, that becomes a foundation upon which you can start to look. Well, if there's hope, what is there hope in? Well, there must be hope in good. There must be hope in true. There must be hope in real. There must be hope in uh, right, that which is right versus that which is wrong. There must be the ability to start drawing distinctions between true and false because what else is there hope in? There must be the ability to draw distinctions between good and evil, right and wrong, real and fake. And you can start to unravel that entire uh, psycho-spiritual um, malaise that Beznavov described as demoralization. And so I feel like for the people for whom that resonates as a way to approach it, um, it's a very, very uh, powerful antidote to demoralization. I personally have a little bit colder, <laughs> crueler, or purposeful um way to not demoralize. Honestly, it's it's really the philosophical equivalent of a gigantic middle finger, which is, I know they want me to quit, so to hell with them, I'm not going to quit. 
uh, I'm not going to give them what they want because they're trying to manipulate me. So to hell with them. It's like a very, I have a lot of defiance that keeps me moralized. Like, you're not going to control me. Who are you? It's like, I go back to office space, that movie. And the guy's name is Michael Bolton. And the the other guy, it's kind of almost like a miniature one-on-one struggle session. He's like, well, why don't you just go by Mike? And he says, why should I change? He's the one who sucks. And I, that's my attitude, right? Why should, why should I quit? You guys are the ones who are the bad guys. And so it, there's that, but I've had these moments where I don't have a good explanation for what it is, but I just have all of a sudden this kind of washing over sense of calmness and confidence. Like, no, we can do this. And I'm, I remember having one when I was driving home one night from the grocery store. Uh, it was dark. It was late because I finally had time to go and I'm driving home and it's like, feeling just kind of washes over me. It's like, no, we can do this. And then I I remember pulling in like, you know, it's almost like a joke. I'm pulling into my driveway. Like, is this faith? (laughs) You know? Um, And I started thinking about the 11th chapter of Hebrews. uh, And I was like, I think it is. And so uh, I feel like that becomes a firm starting place though, to reach in, if not the defiant thing that, that really appeals to me and you know, that what 11% or whatever of people who are not 15% who are just natural rebels to control. Um, I think it's a starting place for a lot of people to start coming back to, well, what can we have faith in? Well, we can have faith in what's good. We can have faith in what's true. If we can't have faith in what's true, then we have nothing. Well, what's true is that's what corresponds to the real. So we can cut through these distortions and get back to reality. Let's try to figure it out. I think it all can kind of stem back from there. So it becomes a very powerful and natural antidote faith becomes a very powerful natural antidote to demoralization. And if Bezdemov is right, he says there's no coming back from demoralization. And then he later says the only hope that we have is to get deep into Christianity. And he specifically names Christianity as the only way to repel Marxist subversion. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I've heard some pretty based Jews. I'm watching the Muslims stand up like crazy. So I don't know if that's strictly true. But what I do know is that... um, if we undo demoralization, the rest of the program to take over our culture doesn't work. And so a renewal of the faith, I point toward being not religious myself. I point toward, I do have faith in the truth and our ability to, to start to understand the truth, but I point toward faith in, in the ideals upon which our country was founded, the American ideals. And uh, I think that's who's going to fix this country. And I, like I said, I'm pretty confident that we will do it. And that is, that is, it's a confidence in something that is promised and a hope in that which is not yet seen. And so it matches that Hebrews definition. Um, it's just crucial not to get sucked into that kind of dark psychological space, which bringing it kind of full circle, that's the point of psychological warfare and kind of a very, think of it like a, the, the point of my martial art is to incapacitate my aggressor, right? The point of psychological warfare is to psychologically incapacitate your target, and that's demoralization. I love how you brought that all together. And the the solution that you talked about to maintaining morale, faith in what is good, real, right, and true, um, to kind of bring it back to what inspired me to reach out to you in your five elements theory, that's the earth element, mm-hmm. right? You talked about based, real, and stoic. So 
Um, for those who haven't heard that episode, please go and listen to it. It's so good. Uh, James Lindsay, New Discourses, This is How We Fight and Defeat the Woke. So you talk about the earth element. You talk about this sort of elemental model of thinking about wokeness. You describe wokeness as pernicious wood. You liken it to a weedy vine like kudzu. You also make this beautiful um, comparison to the cordyceps mushroom, which I think is a great analogy for psychological parasitism Mm -hmm. and the way people can be um, taken over and their behaviors controlled by something that's ultimately not them and doesn't have their best interest at heart. Um, But you talk about the antidote to it, right? And the way that all the different elements can fight the wood, the way that we can cut off water or resources, which you define as financial resources, but also psychological resources, emotional resources, attention, compassion flowing toward this uh, this weed, right? Mm-hmm. You talk about how fire can burn it and metal can cut it. And you talk about how um, also the nature of wood is, you imagine a seed falling between the cracks of the earth. And I'm thinking about this because I was just recently in the tropics. And uh, while I was there, I was recalling how uh, coconut trees are early colonizers. So coconuts can float on the ocean, land on a brand new island that just formed from volcanic rock, and open up between the cracks of that volcanic rock where there's nothing else, there is no soil, and a coconut tree can sprout. And so we have plants that are early colonizers, like coconuts, for example, that are good at breaking through rock. And so you describe that sort of wood element of this pernicious ideology as having the power to penetrate earth and that um, the the ways that the earth element can fight back is to become more based, real, and stoic, to be grounded in reality, to nurture the truth, to nurture that which is good, real, right, and true in our lives. Whether that's, um, you know, you talk about tending our gardens both literally and metaphorically. I love the way you brought all that back together around morale and also this kind of beautiful synthesis you offered of how... Um, Someone who's not, you know, a true believer um, uh, in a religious sense can draw from the the strength of um, traditions of wisdom, which is another part of that earth element, right? You talked about being grounded in the the founding documents of this country um, as one of the basis or bases for a healthy version of patriotism. That strong earth that can defend what values we stand for. Yeah, in the in the podcast, I likened it to not just to kudzu or, you know, whatever kinds of pernicious wood growths, but specifically to one that was very common. I don't I think it's probably common where you live. It's common where I live, which is poison ivy, um, which is obviously a little bit of an irritant of a plant if you <laughs> ever had the pleasure of getting into it. Um, apparently one in six people don't suffer that one in six people are naturally immune, but here on the West coast, we have poison oak. Yeah. They're in the same family. Yeah. Yeah. So here we refer to it kind of in slang. If you're kind of one of these people that has done like, you know, trail work or whatever, we, we refer to poison Ivy kind of a nickname as nature's bandaid. So somewhere that, you know, a machine has scored the, the, the embankment or whatever, the first plant that'll grow up is usually poison Ivy. And so now you have a poison ivy problem where you didn't before. Well, what keeps the poison ivy out is usually that the the undergrowth or the if it's in your yard, the turf is is well developed and healthy. This is why I say tend to your garden. The pernicious plant doesn't have or the weed it doesn't have the capacity to grow in a well tended uh, environment, but it, it can sprout. So you also have to to try to make sure that it, when you see it that you do something about it. 
And I think that the metaphor to it being um, what the Chinese would recognize as the wood energy, which is that that concept of being the usurping son, you know, the son who's envious of his father's success and then usurps it. That's quite literal, by the way, in Maoism. In Maoism, because of their Confucian ethic in um, Chinese culture, which is based on family piety, um, getting getting their young revolutionaries to denounce their parents, their father in particular, was a key element in Mao breaking uh, the the young person away from the family and and pledging their loyalty to the socialist state and to him to himself, you know, a very cult like behavior as a matter of fact. But this idea that the the energy that the, this movement in general exhibits has this kind of usurping sun seed bursting open, you know, springing into the um, into the gaps and into the cracks. A friend of mine once described it, this is just not to get too Baroque and weird because now we're changing to water, but he said that the way that what he's seen through history is the way that communism works um, because it comes in saying that it's, oh, it's such a good thing, right? It's such a good thing. He said, it's like they, the society is like a big rock and it's just a natural rock. It has cracks in it. It's ugly or whatever. It's not perfect, but it's a rock. And, um, they pour water into the cracks and say, look, we filled in the cracks in your society. And then the second you stop paying attention, the water freezes and the frost heave happens and it cracks the rock open and your society is in ruins before long. So I feel like that that's very much the the, the way that this kind of operates is it, it kind of fits in between the cracks, which is the Chinese wood thing, and then splits them open. And, you know, I think it's so important that we tend to our values, we tend to our own psychological health. That's the based real and stoic part that we don't demoralize and and that's tending our earth element. And then like you mentioned, they should listen to the podcast themselves, but cutting off resources being financial, psychological, emotional, but the goodwill they very frequently this kind of a, this attack what we're being especially, you know, you working with people um who are dealing with, you know, transition and all of this they are begging for the goodwill of the people. You know, it's it's an appeal to compassion. And don't you have goodwill for this? And I think the last two years of pride parades have burned up a lot of goodwill. A lot of Americans and Canadians are a little short on goodwill for what's being asked at this point. Well, cutting off access to that resource um, is a, necess- a necessary thing to prevent its growth. It grows when it's fed financial and social and cultural resources like goodwill and compassion and money. Um, and then, like you said, you know, metal chops it down. So that's, I said, things like scathing criticism, satire, the kind of biting and cutting satire. I actually go into it and say there are different types of satire. But then the fire element's a weird one in Chinese. I'm just kind of doing this so that people who haven't heard the podcast can get a flavor of it because it means um, several things at once. In fact, fire is characterized as kind of being, it's feminine actually, but with masculine characteristics, it's a very strange thing because it's actually insubstantial. If you tried to grab flame, it's not there. It's literally fluid in a sense. And so it's feminine and characteristic, but then at the same time, it's, you know, biting, it's burn you, it's hot, it's throwing off light. That's all very, you know, young or masculine and characteristics. So it's this bizarre thing. And its characteristics are that it's, it clings to whatever it's burning. And so it's got this clinging quality to it. And it's obviously uh, consuming whatever it's clinging to. So it's got consumption uh, woven into it. 
And then it's also throwing off light, so it's illuminating, so exposing the truth. This is a very kind of uh, fire element sort of thing. And so I encourage people that you want to try to illuminate what's going on. You want to bring truth to these things. You want to bring clarity. The fire element is strongly associated with clarity. Um, I think, in fact, one of the concepts in, in the I Ching for clarity is like repeated fire or fire over something like lightning or something. I don't know, something like that. The idea is that, that, that you're bringing light and clarity to the circumstances um, is is very very important. But it's also this there's this acceleration tendency. You know, if you want to burn the wood off faster, make it hotter, and um, that's a dangerous thing to do though because the fire might get out of control. So these are the kinds of things, and then it'll burn your garden down that you're trying to tend. So these are the kinds of things that I was trying to bring attention to as far as that five element thing goes. But it really none of it works unless you have your basis first. You can't wage psychological warfare or political warfare back or even defensive political warfare against a movement that's trying to control you unless you have your basis first. So like I said, what is demoralization according to Bezdemov? What does it lead to? Demoralization leads to destabilization. That's next. So we've talked about this again and again throughout the whole conversation is destabilize, destabilize, destabilize. It's all very unsettling. It's these were words we've been using that destabilizes. You don't know where to turn. You don't know who to trust. And that's where you have to start. You have to start by realizing that there are these very manipulative forces. It's unfortunate. Nobody, and nobody came into the world hoping or wanting to be manipulated, but people at certain times and certain circumstances do manipulate others. And sometimes that's a mass formation uh, of manipulation. So we have to be prepared to deal with that manipulation. It's been very nice to be very innocent for 70 years and forget that there are manipulative and dangerous people out there. Um, but that time has ended. And so we have to be able to safeguard ourselves psychologically without giving into the temptations to become a problem, without giving into um, despair or demoralization. And that starts by making sure I actually just put out a short podcast uh, yesterday titled stability repels revolutions. Uh, if you want to stop a revolution from happening, I think actually my guy changed the title to make it more you know, attractive to people who click on things. I didn't want to say clickbait, but um, I think he changed the title. But my title was stability repels revolutions. Uh, so they need to destabilize us in psychological warfare is for that. And so you've got to start by getting stable. And that's going to be found in what's true, what's good, what's right, um, what's real, which is based real and stoic, as the kids say it. So bringing it all back home to that earth element, what is keeping you grounded and what's nourishing your garden? Well, I take a, more than my fair share of time for myself lately, um, especially it being summer. But I decided at the end of December last year that I was going to set aside time to be outside every day. So I went outside in the cold and the rain, cold rain, also snow. And, you know, I wouldn't walk five, six, seven miles. And I was in the dark and the rain and the snow just to have me time. I think it's actually really healthy especially maybe, I don't know if this is, I don't know if there's a sex bias on this, but it may, I'm going to say, especially for men to be alone and to spend time with themselves and just kind of, you know, not ruminating, you have to be doing something, but, um, getting comfortable being that way. And that's very helpful. Uh, I try to spend time with my family determined and dedicated time. Um, 
I'm very motivated by the projects that I do. I told you I have that defiance too. That actually keeps me grounded. But I try to interact with reality and physics much more than, you know, the black mirror <laughs> every day to the degree that I can. And that really helps. Um, pulling back from how much uh, media I consume, especially social media, adopting an attitude that my first instinct when I see something on social media is that it's contrived, it's fake. Um, it might be wrong, but I can fix that later. My first instinct is that. You know, another one is that I've, I've trained myself, and this keeps you very grounded, by the way, is if everybody's reacting to something, wait a few days before you react to it. Just see how it plays out. It's, you know, you got to adopt that attitude of kind of like the wizened old grandpa on his rocking chair on the porch and like, let's just watch this go down for a minute. Then we'll weigh in and see what's, you know, when we kind of know the players, we know the circumstances. That's been very grounding. But, you know, healthy food, regular exercise, sunshine, being outside, spending time with actual human beings and loved ones. I can't encourage people strongly enough as much as I'm enjoying this to do less Zoom, more face-to-face, -face. actual spend time with, with people, share space with them, not to get hippy-dippy. I know you're a hippie at heart, you said, but the, there's an energy to it when you're there in person. And it's, I think, very renewing. I just read a thing. I don't know anything about this. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. It's very renewing to watch water. So go find a river, <laughs> go watch the water flow. Apparently it's good for you. Um, but I, I do. I like to spend time outside. I've got old enough now that I've noticed birds exist, so I'm fairly entertained by the birds. Turns out birds are at war all the time. It's kind of interesting to watch. Uh, but, you know, out reality. You keep grounded by getting out in reality. I think also, though, actually, now that I'm thinking about these things, the key disposition is humility. If Humility and, and gratitude. I talked to Jordan Peterson about that uh, about a month ago. We sat down and he he kind of grilled me in his very Jordan Peterson. Well, what makes you think you're not crazy? And I'm like, holy crap, Jordan. Like, well, I'm grateful to do what I get to do. I, I've come from a position of wanting to help, wanting to serve. I don't think I have that many answers, honestly. I try to stay humble and um, ask, how can I serve the situation that I'm in? And I think that those things are actually very important. He, I mean, the earth is the humblest of the elements. So it is really important to to attach to that and, and maintain that humility. I relate so much to all of that. I just want to put in my two cents and, and double that, you know, because um, I, I'm, I draw my nourishment from the same things from trying to get off of screens into the real world, out into the elements, I'm finally seeming to be gaining my physical strength back after a long period of illness. So it feels good to be exercising the strength of my body again. I actually got out paddleboarding for the first time. I'd tried it before and never could find my balance. And so I finally found my balance on a paddleboard on the lake, just kind of following the ducks around. Yeah, that's great. Um, I've started, I, I, I'm one of these guys. I got into those cold plunges, right? And so there's something oh, yeah. about very cold water. When you interact with physics, as I said, you know, you can go shoot basketball. Turns out that basket, that ball does not go through the basket unless you do it right. Physics doesn't make forgiveness for you. So go do these things, you know, but there is mm -hmm. no, there, maybe there are other things. There are very few um, physical sensations that are quite as real as being submerged in cold water. 
And I find that I don't know if it's like because your body thinks you're going to die because you probably are going to if you mm -hmm. stay there too long. Mm -hmm. And then you get all kinds of like catecholamines going on. But it's immensely grounding and clarifying. I can't if I have a little bit of despair or a negative mood and it's so much harder to make myself do it then and I get in the cold water, it's like a shock right out of it. And there's something I it, it's you. There's no choice but to be very, very, very present with what's happening. When you're in an Absolutely. uncomfortable physical situation, cold water is an example. A lot of women don't do well with it for whatever reason. My wife hates it. Um, she actually had a reaction. Did you know you can be allergic to cold? You can be allergic to cold. Uh, don't gaslight your wife and say that's not a thing because it turns out it's a thing. Um, so, but interacting with uncomfortable physics with, like you said, with the paddle board, you know what? If you don't have your balance, you're not staying on that thing. <laughs> it's just it doesn't forgive mm -hmm. you for making a mistake. This stuff's really important. And in fact, it's kind of frustrating and funny at the same time in, in certain ways. And I think that that actually brings you back to yourself and to humility and, and, and joy, really. Um, I think these are and important. Trying new things and things that you're not good at so that you're constantly exercising new capacities of the mind and body. Like on a paddleboard, anything that involves finding your balance, you have to find those core stabilizers. You have to discover new ways of moving to hold yourself together. And that keeps us adept and agile. It wards off Alzheimer's. Um, and to anybody who wants to learn more about deliberate cold exposure therapy, Andrew Huberman did a great uh, episode of Huberman Lab on that. It's really good for your brain. It It's just as good as Adderall for dopamine and norepinephrine. So, um, and it's good for your immune systems. It can help with weight loss. I've been I've been doing a little bit of cold plunging myself as well. I'm very sensitive to it, so I'm working my way up in tolerance. But you're absolutely right. And I would say, even from a psychological perspective, that um, there are ways of working with the urge to self harm in therapy. And sometimes uh, taking a cold shower or exposing oneself to cold can alleviate the desire to cut or do something else like this because it, it gives you that sensation of pain in a way that immediately gets your endorphins kicking in and gets you wanting pleasure again rather than wanting to hurt yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I very much endorse all of that. And it's great to just relate to you on that level of being humans in nature, taking care of ourselves as well as you know the level of all the intellectual thought leadership that you do. So thank you so much for your contributions and for coming and talking with me today. What are you up to next and where can people find you? Well, I'm up to a lot of things all at the same time. I'm still speaking all over the, I was going to say the country, I guess, but the world really, or well, the US, Canada and um, uh, Europe. So I'm getting around, still speaking a ton. I'm trying to write down my ideas. I'm still podcasting and so on at New Discourses. So it's newdiscourses.com. You can find that stuff there. Um, at new discourses on social media, if you want to find that there. Uh, but I'm also trying to write down these thoughts. And so I'm sort of, I told you before we started, I'm sort of concurrently writing four books at once, which is a bit overwhelming. But one of them is actually dealing with the political warfare environment. So I get to, I get to draw off of that a lot today in our conversation. Um, you can find me personally, instead of my, my company, uh, you can find me personally on social media at Conceptual James. And uh, I got introduced in a public talk recently as a knife fighter on social media. So if it's not your cup of tea, it's not your cup of tea. But um, I, I 
you'll see some of that stable, accurate, vicious, cold, crisp, fast stuff on social media. I'm a little, I'm a little harsh. I'm too, I, I don't live up to the principles I t- encourage other people to espouse sometimes. Um, but well, you can be a little intimidating, but I've, I've been following you for several years and I've had moments of like, I don't know, he's a little too intense. I don't know if I can handle him, but, but I think, uh, after following you for many years, I, I, I see where your heart is coming from. And I think you have some really valuable wisdom to offer us, including times that you have to draw on that martial way of thinking. Um, you offer great insight into that world. So thank you so much. I have a couple of your books already in my bookshop. Um, so if you go to sometherapist.com slash bookshop, I believe I have how to have impossible conversations and cynical theories there. We'll put those in the show notes as well. Um, James, once again, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of you must be some kind of therapist podcast. To check out my book recommendations, articles, wellness products, guest episodes on other podcasts, consulting services, and lots more, visit sometherapist.com. Or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at sometherapist. If you'd like to go deeper, join my community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. Members can dialogue with other listeners, post questions for upcoming podcast guests to respond to, or ask questions for me to respond to in exclusive members-only Q&A live streams. To learn more about the gender crisis, watch our film, No Way Back, The Reality of Gender-Affirming Care at nowaybackfilm.com. Special thanks to my producers, Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix, and to Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. If you appreciate this podcast and want more people to find it, kindly take a moment to rate, review, like, comment, and share on your platforms of choice. Of course, just because I am some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.